Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday, Food Junkies listeners. Today, me and Clarissa dive deeper into food addiction treatment with Dr. Claire Wilcox, and the three of us get passionate about the topics. So in this interview, we'll talk about assessment to determine treatment, subtypes in food addiction, specific tools clients can use based on subtypes, emotional eating, volume addiction, misconceptions we need to be aware of, the concept of recovery, and weight and body stigma. Welcome back, Claire. All right. We are so excited to have Dr. Claire Wilcox back for interview number two with the Food Junkies podcast. So thank you so much for coming back and being here again with us today, Claire. Yeah, I'm really excited, actually. Yeah, well, so are we. Molly and I came up with these questions and we were super pumped to ask them to you. And so we want to start out, you know, kind of the way it might start out with a client. Can you talk to us about screening and assessment when it comes to food addiction? What are some of the best tools available for clinicians to be using these days? No, I, that's a really useful question. And, you know, I think there's a lot of the, so, so one area that's important is a good screening tool for food addiction proper. Are they going to meet criteria for food addiction? And I think that's kind of step one and a very small piece of the puzzle, right? So in that, the one I know best is the Yale food addiction scale, but there are other ones obviously out there, the Crave and things like that. I just don't know them as well. But I really like the Yale food addiction scale because it's based on the DSM criteria for substance use disorders. And it's pretty straightforward to use and pretty straightforward to score. And it's, I think, like publicly available. At least you can figure out how to score it just by going to the literature for free. So it's, it's and it's evidence-based. It's been validated and translated. So, but that's not the only piece, right? So say somebody needs a criteria for a food addiction or, you know, food use disorder, and then there's mild, moderate, severe, whatever you want to call it. We've got to make sure, and I think this is kind of where you guys were hoping we could go today, that we're also looking for other comorbidities in that patient, because there is so much in both a regular substance use disorder or food addiction, there is so much comorbidity that can influence the recovery process. Like, trajectory, right? Like so many other factors. You know, I think maybe the first step place we should go because it's the most obvious is looking for comorbid eating disorders. And what do we want to use for that? Because as you guys know, know, it can lead to a different food plan potentially in somebody with a comorbid eating disorder, right? And there may be some treatment decisions that may be slightly different in somebody who say has more of a restriction history than somebody who is purely sort of in the overeating realm. So just kind of looking at where somebody's falling and their behaviors and how they're they're triggering the problem. So I like for looking for comorbid eating disorders, a couple of things. So the one I've used in my private practice is there's the EDEQ, the eating disorder questionnaire, and it has four subscales. And three of them, I think it's funny because they were talking about the Yelp food addiction scale can have a false positive for eating disorders. So that, that's because people will be, you know, if you, if you restrict a lot, then you're going to have all these food addiction type symptoms, right? But you can also have false positive eating disorders if you have an underlying food addiction, in my opinion, you know, hasn't been well studied, but based on the EDEQ. But the, so there's four subscales and the scale that I think is the most useful for looking for this restraint piece, like restricted eating piece, is the restraint subscale. And so they just have a nice set of questions and you can kind of see where they fall in that subscale. So I found that one useful. There's the binge eating scale, which helps you kind of monitor people over time, like how severe they're binging. And I like that too, just to kind of track improvement. And then there's the, this is like the more of a researcher one. I haven't used it, but it seems totally useful to use the TRI, oh man, what is it? The TFEQ restraint subscale. It's basing on what it's actually three factor eating questionnaire is what it stands for. And the restraint subscale is the one that is again gonna kind of give you that piece about the restrictive eating. There's also a cognitive subscale which gets at like 
how much are you trying to not eat, which I think can be positive both in an eating disorder and a food addiction primary person, and then the emotional eating scale, which also can be positive in the food addiction eating disorder piece. But I think the restrict, you know, it's important that we understand that. And then going through just ourselves and finding out about sort of yo-yo dieting history, just, you know, what is your family history? What, what do you have a substance use disorder history? All these things that, that Wes talked about in his separating out the signal from the noise piece can help us really try to understand, you know, body image issues, like have you been in eating disorder treatment before because we're severely underweight? Like all of these factors, right? Can help us decide, are we thinking this person has a primary eating disorder, primary food addiction, or both? And that can definitely exist. And it's going to inform our treatment, I think. And then the other set of subscales that I eat all, I'm like such a subscale idiot. I, I don't know. I just love them. <laughs> for starters, you know, not subscales, but um, questionnaire. And is are the ones for just mental health problems, right? So people who have comorbid major depressive disorder or comorbid generalized anxiety disorder, comorbid with a lot of social anxiety disorder in food addiction and eating disorders, comorbid PTSD, all of these things. So there's just a bunch of like good, useful. I do them in my intakes with people. ADHD is another one, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And not forgetting to look for inattention subtype, but not just about the kids that are bouncing off the wall. It's There's a lot of people that don't manifest as ADHD, you know, they're not moving around in their chairs, but their brains can't concentrate as well. And they have impulse control issues. That's really comorbid with overeating and binge eating as well. So, so I have a bunch of scales that I use for that, which I'd be happy to go through, but I do those in my intake. Do you guys want me to kind of talk about a few that I find useful in that area? Or is that a little too much? Yeah. Okay. So what I like, and by the way, substance use disorder screening, I do, I usually just, you know, I don't use those assessments, Carol, but you don't just go to like, my own questions and then I look at the DSM criteria. I have them laying out in front of me, like sometimes because I forget everything. But if I have it in front of me, I can kind of ask the patient, oh, do you have this criteria? You know. But as far as the subscales that I like for psychiatric, underlying psychiatric issues that I do in many of my patients. So the PHQ9 for depression, the uh HAM A, which I don't love, but I'll use for anxiety, the PCL, the PTSD checklist is what I use for PTSD. ASRS is what I use for ADHD. It's just, a, it's a real like simple screening tool. It's a screening tool. It's not a diagnostic tool. You know, a lot of people can have false positives for, on that, but it's a really nice way to start. And then I go and I ask if there's any, a family available to interview to, because to have true ADHD, you're supposed to have your family, you're supposed to you know, have had it when you were younger too. So I, you know, like to ask the mom if it's possible or dad. Then I do, you know, the ACEs are lovely. I haven't done that in my practice, but the ACEs to look for childhood trauma. Oh my God, it's such a wonderful scale. And then I, oh, I do this too with people. Oh, the MDQ for mood disorder questionnaire to look at, do they have mania symptoms? And then again, it's just a screening tool because then you can go use that to ask, you know, are, do they really need criteria for a bipolar disorder? It's just, you know, I don't know, maybe a little bit of mood instability or substance use or who knows. And then the mood diary. So I, I have this, this chart that I'll have people go home with. And I'd say about, oh, 8% of my patients actually do it, but it, when they do it, it's so helpful to like, have them like check every day on the chart when, what their mood is, like, was it high, low, or in the middle? Like, how much did they sleep? You know, did they remember to take their medications that day? Like, did they struggle with impulsivity that day or whatever? And it just helps to track like what's going on from a day-to-day perspective. You know, and a lot of the diagnoses with for, for psychiatry, we have to, you know, be looking at changes over time. It's just not just like, I feel hyper all the time. It's like, oh, wait, let's just piece out. Is it every day? Is it just like five minutes a day? Like, you know, you really getting the timing of things is really important. So, and parsing it from substance induced or eating disorder induced or food induced. I mean, there is no question that overeating sugar, having a binge, will affect your mood during the binge and for several days afterwards. Your mood, your impulse control, your cognition, all of that stuff, your sleep. I mean, it just kind of messes things up, right? So there's no question that that, that can influence people's underlying sort of mood and impulse control and anxiety. So that's my long answer. No, it's such a good answer because, you know, being a clinician in, in the field, like out there working in mental health and substance use disorders, I'm the same way. I use the MD. I mean, so many of those letters you're naming, like I used MDQ, you know, CAGE, Audit, Mass, DAS, 
PCL, like all of those right, awesome. went, into, went into this like really extensive intake or even assessment when I was, you know, working on like a chemical dependency evaluation or something along those lines. And the thing that I always noticed was, or that I began to notice, you know, you do enough of these and the patterns start to show up. And there was a really clear difference between those clients whose mental health diagnoses were primary and the addiction was secondary and vice versa. And it matters. That stuff matters because when we are addressing, if it's mental health primary and the addiction is secondary, in other words, it's showing up as the solution to the mental health thing, the way that we treat that particular person looks slightly different. Are interventions going to be similar? Yes, but that looks slightly different than the person who is just 100% alcohol use disorder and there's no underlying anything else. I mean, the things that we can do with the person that doesn't have those comorbid conditions is vastly different. The the timeline of it can be sped up and, and we can go harder and we can go faster sometimes, you know? And, And so that really intrigued me because I always knew that intuitively, but that was never something that was specifically taught to me. So then I'm reading your book and you start talking about food addiction subtypes And my mind, as I'm like reading it, I'm just like, oh my God, that makes, I'm like feeling validated. It makes so much sense. And now I need to know, like, what are these subtypes? How do I decipher them? Are there three subtypes? Are there 10 subtypes? How many subtypes are there? How do we treat them? What further investigation do we need to do? I just want to talk about subtypes, Claire. So (laughs) I love it because I'm fascinated by it too. I mean, it is just, so, so when I was doing research before I kind of left the university a few years ago, I was passionate about defining these subtypes of alcohol use disorder, not in a sort, not for theoretical reasons, but for practical reasons, because when you know what somebody, what subtype somebody has, then you can figure out what what treatment there is, right? And in alcohol, do you know about the subtypes in alcohol use disorder? Yeah. So they kind of have that feel to it too. So there's like the early onset comorbid substance use, like genetic component, like kind of the hard and fast, like highly addicted folks that start out young. And then there's the later onset alcohol use disorder folks that tend to be, you know, just like maybe maybe they're the ones whose depression is feeling they're drinking or something like that. And we don't really know a lot about it. We don't really know exactly what the true treatments are, but it's just fascinating. I mean, there are these possible subtypes and we do know that, for example, the early onset alcohol use disorder folks, the ones that are like, hard, you know, doing other, dr- other drugs and, and trying to have chaotic more impulsive by stuff, they don't do well when they get an SSRI. So the sort of a typical treatment for depression or anxiety makes them get more impulsive and worse, which is fascinating. And the other folks that are maybe mental health primary, I don't know, but tend to do better. And so so I think there's gonna be something to that maybe one day. And and I, you know, I too am fascinated by the subtypes. Now I have not I have to say with alcohol use disorder, we're still in the early days of figuring out if there are indeed subtypes that are useful for matching treatment to them, right? Like, you know, the whole match treatment, you know, the whole study they did, in, I don't know, thousands of people and they kind of didn't, didn't really help. And so we've been left with, you know, the same problem in food addiction, but I am absolutely of the same mind that, I mean, how many treatment options do we have for addictions in general that we apply to food addiction? Like, I mean, so like, so many medications, so many different types of therapies, so many different like food plan possibilities. We just got like a hundred things. So how do we know what each patient needs? And are there some ways that we can do it other just than by like the trial and error that we've been doing? Or, I mean, which I think is can be very triggering for people as you guys are, you know, the one size fits all approach is also very triggering, right? Like I think we all are individual, but can we do a little bit of one size fits allness within subgroups? I mean, that would, it would just, ease are the patient's progress because they wouldn't just be going like, oh, that didn't work on the head this, that didn't work on the head this, you know, they could get get moving faster. So um, I have theories, but no answers. And I really want the world to study this, but the way kind of, you know, there's several ways of grouping it. And so I kind of wrote them down and I think, you know, open to your guys' thoughts too. I love your idea of mental health primary head down, but I think that's like a good potential possibility, right? But I think my groupings could end up falling into just exactly that. Like, we don't know. But like the theories, and this is not just my idea, this is like based on all the reading and everybody else's ideas. But some of the ideas would be kind of what they're, what 
the neuroimaging literature and addictions, like the, what I obsess about or have obsessed about in the past, are the three categories of like relief use. So for emotional relief, reward use. So then that's like in response to cues. So a cue is like a, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, so a little taste of a cookie can be a cue, a walking into a bakery, all those things. So those are cues. So there's, there's the emotional one or relief. The Q1, which is reward. And then the third category, which probably is going to overlap both of those, is impulse control. But sort of how are the, how is the prefrontal cortex working? And, and the idea behind, you know, in the brain, you would think like, oh, the people that are, have more emotional reactivity or trouble, trouble regulating their emotions, but one way in their brains, and those guys would need this treatment. You know, the person who's striatum, you know, reward network lights up when they get exposed to food cues, those guys need different treatment and then the third group are those that have trouble with cognitive control and so that's one grouping but i think that we don't know like is that going to be useful we know it's there was a really cool study in alcohol use disorder i can't remember if i brought it up in the last podcast or not so if i did i don't know throw it away but where they looked at people's brains those who were more reactive to alcohol cues tended to do well but with naltrexone Whereas those that weren't reactive to alcohol cues didn't do as well with naltrexone. The idea being that naltrexone is, and we know that naltrexone lowers the brain activation of alcohol cues. So it works probably in some ways by making you less sensitive to stimuli in the environment. And so, you know, is that medication working via that cue mechanism? So are these people who are more cue reactive, perhaps more likely to respond to naltrexone than those that aren't? You know, nobody's done yet a large clinical trial, but people have done these smaller neuroimaging studies. It's fascinating. I mean, that's just like a really nice like model. And we could do it with psychotherapies, we could do it with food plans. I mean, I just think it's like a model that could be used to do it with not without neuroimaging, with questionnaires, so it would cost a million dollars a patient. So I just think anyway, but I think other possibilities would be by mental underlying mental health diagnosis or so depression spectrum, anxiety spectrum, ADHD spectrum, maybe. It could be what like food eating patterns are, what foods people are sort of more attracted to, the volume eating versus, you know, sugar. I, I don't know. You know, these are just like theories, right? Severe withdrawal. I was thinking about how, you know, people who really have severe food withdrawal and now we have this oh lovely withdrawal scale, right? Like could maybe they're gonna they need residential. That could be a, like a deciding point for residential versus not. So that could be, you know, a treatment matching possibility. I think trauma versus no gender, female versus male may be different. And I think the study that was, there was a study that was done that looked at clustering and they found, so they did like statistical analyses, which took a big soup of people with food addiction-like symptoms and said, how do they cluster? This is one I cited in the textbook. And they had the, they sort of decided that the three clusters that emerged from this pool of people were eating disorder primary, food addiction primary. And I think it may have just been binge eaters, like most of the population, but food addiction primary, eating disorder primary, and obesity slash grazing behavior. And they suggested that like treatments would be different for each of these three categories, which I thought was fairly interesting too. Like the eating disorder would be more eating disorder focused treatment, food addiction would be do more food addiction treatment, removal of cues, you know, and then the obesity grazing folks they suggested in the article would respond better to, you know, weight loss focused treatment plan. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But I think there's just so much we need to study and we need to answer, you know, answer, are there subgroups? And then also, if there are subgroups, how do we treat them differently? And I think now what I would say is the best way to do it is if treat our patients for the comorbidities that they have like if they have a depression like let's give them treatment for the depression in addition to their like you know their food addiction kind of get, getting at it both at the same time in parallel hand in hand so yeah those are my thoughts on this but it's yes. such a interesting thing i mean i don't know what you guys i am dying to know because you guys are seeing so many more patients too what you think about that and you know what categories, like Molly was saying, mental health primary, do you guys have any other categories that come to mind or that up bells in your heads or what you do differently for your patients if they fall into different categories? I think we do. I think we see like mental health primary. I think we see eating disorder primary. I think we see food addiction primary with eating disorder. You know, I mean, we just kind of talk about, you know, it's like total anecdotal back and forth 
consulting with one another, what we're seeing with clients, but it is clear that there are different flavors, so to speak, as to how this shows up. And I think that, you know, we, I have felt a lot of frustration because as you know, there are actually, there are many people out there now that treat food addiction or, or, you know, say that they treat food addiction many more than five years ago, five and a half years ago, six years ago, when I started looking and everybody kind of has their own thing and everybody believes their way is right. And I'm beginning to feel like that's accurate for the people that they're right for. And I think this idea of subtypes makes sense then that if there is somebody who it's pure addiction, right? Yeah. There's, it, it's that cue. It's the cue one, right? It's yeah. the, it's the reward. I yeah. think that that hard line abstinence based, it's black and white, whatever. I think that is absolutely you know, a treatment that's probably going to be more effective when it's the relief type. Like, I think I'm definitely the relief type. I know that mine started emotionally. It was clinical depression and anxiety for many years. Now there are people who will show up and say, well, that's because of the food bullshit. I don't think it was because of the food. I think it's because of the trauma. And so, right. The adverse childhood experiences. And so I think that was primary. The food became a, a symptom of it, right? Like the addiction was a symptom of what was already going on. So it was medicating. But once I did therapy and then it was very easy to remove the food, now it's just like, why would I even go back to the food? And it's been surprisingly like, that's just not even an option because that's not something I would do. I think I'm the relief kind. So that hard line, I think that's why maybe I bristle at some of the you know, harsher takes on some of it personally, I see that it works for people, but for me personally, that wouldn't be it. But then, like you said, that impulse control, when you've got that overlapping and now we're dealing with all of the things combined, yeah, right. It's even more difficult because you're kind of always like trying to hit a moving target, but it's when you can match, when you get closer to that match, those folks are better off. I don't know. I've talked a lot. Go ahead, Clarissa. (laughs) No, no, it just really reminds me of even like when I work with individuals with the cross addiction and I'm like, okay, are you somebody that is uses for arousal, right? Pleasure, intensity, like you want to feel something like pleasure or is it numbing and you want that sedative effect and like you want to feel nothing and is it fantasy, right? Where you want to escape to like another reality is better than mine or that deprivation, that sense of control, right? Where it's like, I'm in control, at least I'm in control of this. And that may present more Mm. in the eating disorder realm. Mm. And And I think with that too, what you're saying, sorry to interrupt for just a second. I think that too, then like really pinpoints like those clients who it's like the pure sugar is more like the dopamine. I'm seeking the reward. I'm the whatever. And and the relief or the numbing are like the bread pasta, right? It's more of like the anxiety, like alcohol Effect. Yeah. Right. Sorry. And yeah. no, it's true. And often with those clients, I will find that they had a history of alcohol use, which makes perfect sense. And like, I know everything we're talking is like making me so excited because it is, I wish there was, like Claire said, just, you know, we were saying, wouldn't that be the key if you just had this resource that was like, I fit in here and here and here. This is the treatment I needed beautiful, but there's just not enough of us out there with, I think with enough training to be able to see. And a lot of the time we do end up getting them to the right place. It is just, it takes like a a more longer amount of sessions, right. In order to help the individual navigate their journey. And sometimes things come up that aren't discovered in the initial screening and assessment that then you know, show up later on in treatment and you're like, okay, now this makes sense. Now I know what treatment avenue to take. Yeah, totally. Things that are getting masked by the addiction too. It's so hard to know what's going on. Yeah. 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 I mean, it it kind of breaks my heart. They're talking about, talking about how everybody has their own different approach or sub sub approach. And, you know, it breaks my heart that we are not, that that this is not in the DSM. We don't have a pool, even a small pool of money to start studying this and more traditional ways to look for subtypes because, you know, I think so many people will, because it isn't a top-down kind of treatment paradigm right now, like we're not going from academia, which is how most things happen, right? Like this, well, that's actually probably not true. But I think because it's kind of this bottom-up like surge in food addiction treatment ideas, it's pretty like, you know, it's diffusive. What you guys are doing is bringing it all together, which is amazing. But like, 
I just feel like, oh, like all the people that are out there bouncing around, because I've been one of them, you know, trying to figure out the solution for a long time when there could be, you know, a more simple pathway if we had a way to subtype people and, and more understanding and empathy about this, this disorder and in the psychiatric conventional health treatment communities. I mean, I heard a guy, but this is a little bit off topic, but who I talked to a psychiatrist the other day in one of my other jobs. Atkins was such a kook, blah, 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 blah. You know, just like all full of judgment. I'm like, well, I, you know, I don't know if he was a kook or not, but like, never had a great idea to work for some people. And and it just felt like, God, there's still so much judgment, like unnecessary judgment about these kinds of approaches. So anyway. Yeah, and it is. And again, I think it, a lot of people would have judgment if they didn't have issues with food personally. And I think if you do, then you understand like, yeah. no, this is actually the game changer. Yeah. This is what makes people get their life back. And I've said this so many times, you know, with yeah. alcohol and drugs, I see people recover and definitely life gets better. But yeah. with food, when they find the right nutrient mix, like yeah. they change their food, they change their whole life. Yeah. And yeah. it just gets bigger, brighter. They accomplish things they never thought possible. Yeah. And I think that is the gift as clinicians and as you get to witness and be a part of. And yeah. so I definitely don't want to get too off topic. I want to get back <laughs> to like your incredible book and the, the treatment for that you speak about, because I think, you know, there's probably a lot of people listening that are like, this is great. There's all these subtypes and you guys like are helping us find treatment. What is treatment and what does that look like? So you certainly spoke to some definite treatment goals of like minimizing the negative affect states and like reducing substance and environmental cue reactivity, preventing that habitual response we have and finding ways to improve our impulse control. So would you be able to give our audience just some examples of what they might try as like a tool in each of these categories? Totally. Yeah. So yeah, and this kind of falls into that theoretical, the, again, these subtyping ideas are kind of theoretical at this point, but they talk about it in the, in the addiction substance literature. Isn't hard and fast there yet, but I think that these are my theories of ways to sort of focus in. But for me, yeah, so negative aspect, right? Emotional, emotional stuff. You feel yucky, so you use something to feel better, relief. So get help for the underlying psychiatric issue. See a psychiatrist, maybe try some medications. There are lots of not super problematic medications out there. I think the SSRIs are not for everybody, obviously. It's the, it's the right diagnosis and the right treatment, but they're pretty benign and there are a lot of other fairly benign medications. So psychotherapy, targeting, you know, evidence-based psychotherapy, got depression, CBT works amazingly well, anxiety, CBT works amazing, you know, whatever. There's all these evidence-based wonderful therapies out there. Trauma therapy, if there's trauma, underlying trauma, history of trauma, so many, so much growth in that field lately. I mean, there's just so many new exciting things coming out around ways to look at or work with those wounded parts of ourselves that, you know, have kind of manifested as a result of trauma. And, you know, I think in a lot of people with food addiction and eating disorders are both, uh, shame and body image is a huge driver both of those are huge drivers of negative affect so even if there's not like an underlying diagnosis working with somebody that is compassionate and kind of you and like gives you i mean therapy can be so powerful or working with a sponsor or being in a group where you're getting messaging that you are awesome and not fake messaging like real because we are all awesome right like can oh, just change everything hearing other people's stories like in 12-step rooms being able to hear like how I am not the only person with this crazy, crazy brain. Like there's a whole bunch of thousands and millions of other people just like me. And in fact, probably everybody I know thinks it's crazy like this. So it's just so, you know, the shame just washes away the more we get, we get support. And then I am a huge believer. I say this every one of my patients practically, um, unless it's really obvious reason not to focus on these things, but exercise and sleep. Oh my God. Like, you know, exercise not like, oh, go exercise and lose your 300 calories every, you know, 20 minutes. Like, that doesn't matter. Like, that does not help you lose weight. It doesn't fix anything. But getting outside and moving your body, like, restores your brain. It does so many good things for mood. And sleep is, there is study after study after study showing that poor sleep, not getting enough sleep, is just it completely makes it difficult to not binge or, 
not, you know what I mean? Like it just kind of undermines all the other work pretty quickly. So getting enough sleep is really, really essential. And, and then just getting, you know, looking at your life, like what's going well, what's not going well. Like maybe you hate your job or maybe you need some help with the kids or maybe, you know, need to get outside more. Or maybe you need an animal or, you know, just sort of finding ways. So I think anyway, that like kind of went on a whole like diatribe, but I think there's, there's so many things that can be done for for the, the emotionality piece. And I think, you know, even in those that are primarily Q-driven, I think I'm primarily a Q-driven addiction person, actually. I think I'm a reward-driven person, but I have had to do a ton of work in this emotional area, and I think it's been really important. So I think all of us will benefit, no matter what subject we are, from a lot of these things. But, but really not ignoring this stuff and doing it. And, oh, and, um, you know, I brought this up last time, but transcranial magnetic stimulation is pretty... It's it is pretty cool. If you have depression or OCD, you can get treatment for it, evidence-based treatment. You know, it's an evidence-based treatment. So you know, it might help with impulse control and food cravings too. So it's kind of a fascinating modality. So there's that. And then for the cure reactivity, I mean, I think this is where, you know, again, like cues, smell, sounds, taste, right? All of a sudden, oh, and I forgot, I should have said for all the categories, all three of those categories, getting rid of, I mean, I don't want to say abstinence, but significantly reducing or cutting out those foods that are known to, you know, not only everybody, but then a lot of us really messes up our mood or eating in manner of binging. Of course, it's kind of circular, right? You're said than done, but like, you know, working towards a more stable food plan can, you know, do make worlds of positive gain for all three of the categories. But anyway, for the cue reactivity, I think the key things are I've heard you say this thing, I think Clarissa or Molly, I can't remember which one, but like on the, the podcast, like, get it out of the house, you know, like, and I think Clarissa, you were the one that said that you counted like 160 cues or something in one day. Yeah, in one day, I just counted and it was, oh, I couldn't even believe it. Like the conversations, the <sighs> song on the radio, the person like in the lunchroom, like just off, it's the smells, it's. Yeah, uh, out of this world. Yeah. How do you avoid it, right? I know, I know. And, you know, I have been realized lately that I can't eat sourdough toast and butter anymore. Like, I just can't, <laughs> sadly enough. And um, my partner still makes it in the house. And it's, like, so hard. It is so... It's, like, the worst two hours, you know? I'm, like, just <laughs> obsessing about it. It's getting better. But, you know, but I think, yeah, it's everywhere. And so, but getting it out of the house, is, is good. Don't eat just, you know, I personally, this is me. Yeah, she can speak for everybody. For me, just one bite doesn't work. Like, I just can't have one bite of a cookie. I just can't. It just doesn't work for me. And I think there's a lot of people that find it's just much easier to just like not eat the cookie because just the little taste like makes your brain kind of light up. And for me, and so that's one way to avoid the, the Q reactivity. There are some possible medications. So we use naltrexone for alcohol use disorder to block your reactivity. And we also use it in food. And I would posit that it probably is working by some of those mechanisms as well. Topiramate and is another one that we is uh, not FDA approved for binge eating disorder, but is used if people can tolerate it. It makes it kind of sticky. There's a sort of related medication called venisamide, which has less side effects and less studied, but might end up being useful for that. But there's some reason to believe that it's acting by ample receptors and blocking key reactivity in that way by the brain, you know, pathways. And then don't be hungry. So hunger is study after study shows that if you're hungry, you are much more crazy, you're much more key reactive, you're much more susceptible to just like jumping in right into the face into the habit. So getting enough food, eating regular meals, and, and eating lots and lots of vegetables, protein, you know, like the good stuff, and just regularly. I, you know, I, I know there's this whole intermittent fasting discussion, and I think that might be for people that are much farther along in recovery than I am, and I don't see enough people in food addiction treatment to know if it's a safe thing or not. But I think for, for me, I would say it sounds like a horrible idea because... <laughs> <laughs> because I worry that I would just be thinking about food all the time. So, so I think this is it. And then for the impulse control, there are, you know, again, some medications to bring up. So if somebody has a comorbid ADHD, stimulants are sort of the, the commonly prescribed medication for ADHD. I think it's fine for somebody with ADHD. I think it can be helpful for somebody with binge eating disorder. It is evidence-based. I mean, I, I've never seen anybody who goes on a stimulant for weight loss and keeps the weight off on a glass of stimulant. It's really, you know, and it does 
sensitize the dopamine system. So in most people, it's likely that it's making that conditioning process even more intense and increasing the reward. And, and it's, you know, I don't think it's a great option. I think it's an option, but it's not my first go-to. You know, I prefer for somebody with comorbid attentional issues or ADHD, the softer ADHD treatments, you know, and if they have an eating issue. So like Stratera, Wellbutrin, Prozac is sort of a stimulating antidepressant. It can be a little bit more helpful for the ADHD patient. And then the Contrave is a fascinating medication, which has both naltrexone and Wellbutrin in it. Again, it's for weight loss. And I think it's a you know, it's not all that great as far as weight loss goes because people stop and then they're getting right back. But I think there could be some interesting possibility for that medication for for the impulse control piece because the Wellbutrin can be useful for ADHD and the naltrexone, you know, might have some anti-impulse control benefits as well as its Q reactivity benefits. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not adverse to it if people can tolerate it. And then exercise and sleep. Exercise and sleep for impulse control, exercise and sleep for impulse control. And in fact, the other thing that came out for ADHD was a study, you know, a couple of studies have come out showing that mindfulness can be really helpful for ADHD. So I think really building up that that practice of attending and staying, and it's so hard. The more you have ADHD, the harder it is to meditate, right? But, you know, if you really infuse your meditation with a lot of compassion and just like, this is just a practicing piano, I'm just sitting down and I'm telling my, you know, I'm just doing my meditation and not about like having a peaceful mind. It's really, you know, I don't have a peaceful mind. So like having, you know, it's it's about a, a it's about the practice basically. So that can be really helpful. You mentioned Vyvanse. Did I miss it or? So I did in the stimulants section. Okay. okay. Um, so that's a stimulant, right? Exactly. Yeah. Just because I have, I do actually have quite a few clients that come to me that because of the binge eating disorder they've been yep. diagnosed with, they're on the Vyvanse and yet it worked at the beginning and it's not, no longer working. Mm-hmm. And then now we have to, you know, do we tirade them off the Vyvanse to be able to, because now they're having problems getting to that mindfulness place where things seem to be able to calm down. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts, but I think you spoke to it when you said, yeah, it, it may work and the weight may come off which I think is a lot of the goal of some of the binge eating disorder, right? Recovery is like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I also have this weight and that'll, that'll and if, if I'm in a lower weight, which we'll talk about in a bit, then I must be in recovery, which is not true. <laughs> <laughs> and that, yeah, that totally for sure it can reduce some of the impulses. You know, I certainly have clients sometimes say like, you know, sit down for 20 minutes and write down how many impulses you have in that time. They go on this medication. It's maybe goes from like 60 to like, you know, 10. And that and that's a huge improvement in life, but not necessarily fixing the food problem. Yes, totally. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I wouldn't be adverse to Vyvanse or the other stimulants. And I see them all in a fairly similar light, you know. I know Vyvanse is definitely approved for binge eating disorder, but it's also approved for ADHD. And it's, you know, pharmacologically very similar to Dexedrine or Adderall or whatever. It's not that different. So I kind of see them all in the same way. And I think, yeah, it can really help with, I guess somebody has a really significant ADHD problem and it is improved with stimulants. Like I've seen people that stand stimulants for life and they do it really helps them function. But for the eating, I don't know, you know, I'm not I'm not convinced for the exact same reasons that people have. So yeah. So you indicated in your book that emotional eating may be more resistant to change and extinction compared to like somebody so again like that relief subtype maybe versus that Q-driven reward individual. So what treatment do you suggest for either the individual that is food addiction with the emotional eating or just emotional eating in general? Like what is our best line of defense or, you know, going on the offense even? Yeah. I mean, just kind of dovetailing on what, what, what I said before, I really think that the emotional there was a study, right? Like that you brought up that, that showed that emotional, like, so people lost weight and the cue driven eating reduced, but the emotional eating, they marked like if they've been emotional eating or cue eating and the emotional eating did not reduce with weight loss, which I would theorize is like the cue, the weight loss was also removing all those food cues and the, it extinguished. They just stopped wanting the food. They stopped craving it for those reward reasons. But all the underlying emotional issues were still there that were unresolved. 
and, you know, stress, anxiety, shame, second guessing on top, like whatever, like all those things that lead people to just burn out and want to escape into some sort of substance that makes their brain quiet. So I think it's just, you know, again, therapies or medication, evaluation, like all the things that we've sort of been talking about, mindfulness, you know, whatever, like the underlying psychiatric mood stuff. Don't let that go. Do not let that go. It's so important, you know? Yeah, because we're never going to avoid our emotions and we can't also avoid food, right? Even if you are over consuming food, it's like Molly said, is like, just because you stop drinking alcohol, you know, it's not like, oh, then I'm just going to have a little bit of alcohol to feel better. But we can still do this with food and we see this in our volume addicts. And so, you know, now I've switched from like now I'm not eating hedonic things, but volume addiction is coming up for me. And so in your research, what have you found on that? Is there some level of emotional eating involved in volume addiction or is there research? Yes. I mean, so I I go to PubMed a lot. Like that's what you go to academic resource, looking up research articles. And I did a search and I found nothing on volume addiction. I, I think it's a it's something that you don't understand from a science researchy academic perspective. You guys have the data on the volume addiction. I mean, I did some reading about like gastric gastric distension and like how you know, insensitivity to oxytocin, for example, at the brain will result in they don't respond to that gastric distension signal. So that's one eating or, you know, other like neurohormones or like too much ghrelin can make people larger meal sizes, for example. So there could just be some like plain old, oh, what the other one say that was it high fat, high carb diets impair the vagus nerve signaling of satiety. So the more we're eating cookies and cake, the less our stomachs are going to be sensitive to stretch. Like, I just thought that was such a fun study. But anyway, so I think there's some biological stuff. But you guys alluded to this connection between emotional eating and volume addiction. And seeing you know many more patients than I have in food addiction, I'm curious if you've seen a connection there. Is that something that you would posit as being linked? I'm starting to think so. I mean, I think, again, I think there's a couple different types going on here. I think there are the people where the volume, because of that desensitization with the, you know, the sad diet, the sad, the standard American diet, where that's been desensitized. I think the longer Clarissa and I talked about this, even with Dr. Kim Dennis, that maybe it's a protracted withdrawal symptom that, that it remains for a period of time, but the longer that they're eating whole real foods, right. We're not introducing the ultra process that some of it resolves, but then I think there are still these people that have it. And I'm more and more starting to wonder if it is like emotional eating, which, you know, science has been like, right. Like they've been researching it for like 40 years and they still don't know like what, right. They don't, they don't know and understand all the drivers behind emotional eating. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah, I was just going to say, I also think there is a percentage of the population who is weighing and measure every meal and says that they're volume addicts, but they are unwilling to giving up the weighing and measuring to really know if this is still true. Mm. And I do think that it would be possible for these individuals to have loving limits. Now, maybe not for all, Mm -hmm. but I just think there's no hard and fast rule. Like Molly said, many times, the longer I see clients, and since I do um, social work as well, I see them some for many years, the volume starts to fade. The episodes of volume eating become less. However, almost always they are triggered by an emotional event, a physiological arousal that then they are seeking some kind of comfort, some kind of numb, some kind of escape. It is very much a comforting experience for them, which makes sense if the stress of the stomach is serotonin. Yeah, I mean, have you guys seen, and I'm asking you questions now, but like, because you guys have worked with substance use disorder populations too, I think, right? Like, have you seen the same phenomena? I mean, I have some patients that use opioids that I feel like have the same, I don't know, like response basically, where I think one patient in particular, but who struggles with relapse and she's, you know, like it's always a something that happens. Like it's just like it's always emotionally rooted and her and yeah, like it's just it's puzzling, like what to do with her. So I don't know. I've seen it with alcohol where the person has gotten off alcohol and then it's like all of a sudden you're seeing an increase in the Red Bulls and the monsters and mm-hmm. the iced teas and the whatever. And 
And I don't know that it's exactly like seeking, like, I don't think it's the dopamine scratch. I think it's the, I'm just looking for an emote, right? More like the oxytocin serotonin. It was doing something else for them on top of the reward. So, I mean, I've seen it play out in a different way, definitely with alcohol, with my opioid addicts, it was always, it, then it switched to chocolate, but we know, right. It hits the same receptors, but certainly, you know, there's, there's typically waking when people come off of the other substances. And I do think it's, you know, food becomes the replacement and not necessarily, again, I don't think, I mean, I am, I am going to be, I don't know, probably burning in hell for this, you know, or burned at the stake, maybe even, but I don't think that it's always cross addiction. I think sometimes it is this, like, I'm still just seeking this emotional thing, which goes back to, I think there's mental health primary stuff in those particular individuals. Clarissa, what do you see? Yeah, no, I would say the same thing. I don't think that just because somebody uses another outlet that automatically that means cross addiction in our module on cross addiction, the research I did, if somebody does have recovery from one substance, that actually does make them less likely to have a cross addiction because they know how to treat that. And so But we're also, we know individuals with addiction, we are very smart. We know how to figure things out. And so if we can't use this, maybe we can use this a little. And so with alcohol, we often can use food, right? I'm like, but with food, what do we use? Nothing. There's nothing left. Everything's gone, right? Because we're not. So maybe we use volume. Maybe that's Uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be fascinating to see what I don't know, like what happens at the level of the brain and the neuroimaging paradigm during a volume, like a, a volume episode, you know, with, I don't know, with stomach distension even. I don't know, like during stre- a stress task or something, you know, and then look at what, what's happening in the brain to the amygdala when, I don't know, when the stomach is suspended. I, I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud, but it would be really interesting. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm with you. So I was just listening to your and Clarissa interview Dr. Goldhammer back in 2021. He's like in the vegetarian vegan world, which, you know, they rely on volume in order to get enough food, enough protein, you know, enough nutrients in general. And to hear him explain how his understanding of our biology is that we are wired or like we're set up for volume, mm-hmm. it sounds like, and not necessarily volumes of this like calorically dense food, but nutrient dense food, which is like the distinction that they make. And so I don't know. So it's so hard because if you talk to, I don't know, I get to talk to him on Wednesday, so I'm going to find out more, but it's almost like from hearing like somebody in that area of work, they're almost saying volume isn't an issue. In fact, we encourage it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's right. necessary even, yeah. not even that yeah. we just encourage it, but that it's necessary for yeah. whole wellness. That's and cool. then maybe it just has to be more of, do we come to work with our clients from a place of acceptance and yeah. not seeing as something guilty, shaming and wrong and bad, really? right? Really? Because you know, when I first started my recovery, like when they told me I could eat 16 ounces of vegetables and, you know, I was on a very much like gracie kind of four ounce. I ate my big salad and I was like, you back off. This is my salad. Like (laughs) I've been restricting my whole life. Like that this, no, you cannot even have one bite. Right. Like, and I felt completely fine about it. I certainly wasn't like gaining weight and there was nothing about it. But then interestingly enough, later on in my recovery, obviously I think ghrelin and leptin start to regulate a bit and I didn't need that much food. And so then it felt a little uncomfortable. And I think the problem with, for some of these individuals is it does feel uncomfortable the level they get to. And so is there a way, you know, sussing that part out is also another piece of the puzzle. Interesting. Like maybe some of the volume addiction is a false positive or like shame about eating high volumes or something like that. You know, I know my my partner laughs at me because I'll be like, like after a hike or something, I like stuff my face with like carrots and you know vegetables or whatever. Like I just am like hungry and I'm like, I just want to eat a lot of food. I'm hungry, but I don't want to eat like the bar, you know, which is just gonna make me a lot more food. So I eat a whole bunch of vegetables. He's always laughing at me like, "What is wrong with you?" But I'm like, what? you know, like <laughs> you wrong with eating vegetables?" <laughs> but you know, and I think you know he judges me in his own kind, sweet way for that. And, you know, maybe there is a message in society that I'm aware of that you shouldn't eat like huge, you shouldn't be productive of your salad. But 
<laughs> but yeah, so I think that's interesting. Interesting question. Yeah. So I think in the spirit of, I know we're running out of time and I've got a hard stop in like 15 minutes for sure. sure. But in the spirit of that, I was going to try to, you know, kind of ask you more of like a condensed question. You know, one of the big things that we run into because we, Clarissa and I, because of the backgrounds that we come from, we really try to work at that intersection, which I think you do as well. I mean, being a psychiatrist, I would imagine <laughs> it's just kind of where you naturally fall. And so you know, we were wondering like what kind of problematic assumptions you've seen, you know, and, and how does, you know, we do run into like in some 12 step programs, there's this definition of abstinence that has to do with a right size body or, you know, like a bright body, a right size body, a ideal body weight we run into. So then the eating disorder camp gets mad at us and they're like, food addiction isn't real. And you're creating food addiction or you're creating eating disorders. But then they don't necessarily address when somebody is saying, listen, every time I eat this very specific substance, I'm out of control and then it's off to the races, you know? And so at the end of the day, like what kinds of problematic assumptions are out there that we need to be aware of? Would it be better if we were all trained, like cross-trained, you know? And yeah, I don't know. I guess I I would just leave it at that because I mean, we talked about the other comorbid diagnoses, you know, and not everybody can be a mental health professional. I get it. But it obviously we know there, it sounds like we have a better understanding of how to treat our clients when we have that understanding is the same true in the eating disorder and a food addiction and, or just regular addiction world. What assumptions do we need to look at? And yeah, the weight. I think that those are just great questions. So I guess maybe I will start. There's still, there are a couple of sub questions in that. I think one thing that we can do as well, okay. So naming it, there are these two fields: there's food addiction camp and the eating disorder camp. They do not need to be in two different camps. We're all treating the same thing. And I think you know, if we push them together on the fact that we all have the same goals, like that, really, the truth is, the end goal for both fields is exactly the same. It's for people to have inner peace. It's for people to be not obsessing about food all day long. It's for people to relax with their lives. It's for people to be joyful and have good quality of life and high functionality and be, you know, generally be generally healthy, have good like markers of insulin resistance and all that stuff and live long, right? So everybody has the same goal. And I think we're all getting confused about the pathways to get there, aren't we? Like everybody's kind of fighting over those pathways. So one thing I've always been desiring is for somebody to come up with this this scale, (laughs) this quality of life scale or inner peace scale or something that people can like agree upon in the two different fields and then patients can track how they're feeling. So it's not about the weight. It's not about how much you're restricting or how, you know, are you abstinent or not? Or it's not about those things. But what is your inner peace? So I think anybody who's, you know, gone from not being in recovery to recovery knows what that feels like. But people who aren't in, you know, who are still struggling, they don't know what the end goal is. Nobody's calling them what it's like, except they, you know, they hear great stories and stuff, meetings or whatever. But there is a night and day difference, right, for those of us that are in recovery. And so I think, you know, Kind of defining that as a group would be really helpful. And as you talked about, so I think some of the problematic assumptions are just that we are thinking that we're, we have different goals, you know. And I think, I think in the end, we really do have all the same goals. And then alluding to that is, you know, the question about can we come together as fields and can we treat patients together and like do integrated treatment rather than silo treatment? So like in the substance use disorder world. The evidence shows that integrated treatment of mental health conditions, substance use disorders, leads to improved outcomes. It's just not a question anymore, right? So, like, if you and it used to be that you treat the addiction first, and then like a year later treat the PTSD. Well, that it doesn't exist anymore. That's wrong. And so we do we try as much as possible to integrated treatment. It's not it's definitely not perfect, but I think the evidence shows that's what we should be doing. But in eating disorders and food addiction. People bounce back and forth, or they stay in or they, I mean, they just whisk around and they're not getting well in either, right? Because they're taking these just extreme messages on both sides. So, coming together, and I think like Dr. Dennis's program is just one model of, from what I understand, what they do is, you know, there's all these things that are true for both eating disorders and food addiction, right? So, learning how to emotion regulate, learning how to deal with your trauma, learning how to whatever, like all these you know, cognitive behavior skills, relapse prevention, all that, but eating healthy, regular meals. These are all the same goal. Everybody, you know, in both camps is the same goal. And those can all be done in groups. But I think what differs is all it's differing really is the individual group. So 
why couldn't that be something that's done in an open way so that people can understand why so-and-so has cookie, but so-and-so does not have a cookie, like everybody, you know, I think we're a lot more, I think we, we have the capacity as human beings to, to be more than black and white, I hope. <laughs> and so I do think that, you know, I think maybe not everybody, but I think a lot of people would do fine with that sort of ambiguity, as long as they were educated and open, you know, everybody's open about that. There's pushback because, you know, this is true in both the addiction and the alcohol world, right? Like in early recovery, the, the thinking, the transition you have to go through, like, you know, when you go from being a regular drinker and going to the bar every night to like suddenly not drinking, like your brain has told you for a long time that it's a really like the only way to be like that is normal. Like going to the bar every night and drinking your beers is like a normal behavior. And like, that's what everybody does. And then, and if you don't drink, like you're a total pariah and you're weird and there's something totally wrong with you. Right. But then in reality, for those that have stopped drinking, they're just like, Oh my God, like, it's just, you know, like no big deal. And actually most people don't really drink like that at all, but you need to go through some sort of like, it's almost like a brainwashing, I hate to say, to make that shift. I think what fears are, you know, and that's true for eating disorders too, like to go from, you know, to really make that cognitive shift from I need to be thin to, you know what, my body shape is really not that important. It's like a major set of cognitions need to be rewired. And so I think there's fear that without them being siloed and like just getting this one-sided black and white messaging that people are not gonna are not gonna be able to make it. And it is possible that for some people that are in the early days of recovery, that might be that ambiguity might be triggering, but we need to we need to study it and we need to know for whom it might work better. You know, maybe there's just the eating sort of just eating disorders, maybe food addiction for just food addiction, and maybe there's like many more that are in the middle for people that have both. I don't know. But I think that, you know, I, I just want to say that I do understand the, the anxiety about it. But oh my God, if we talked as fields much more and educated each other and came to agreement about what our outcomes are, which are the same, you know. Yeah. Was, and, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So much value. And obviously we got to be in Kim Dennis's program and kind of witness what was there. And I just saw so much value from people seeing the different meal types. And maybe, you know, as we talk about both being on a spectrum, you know, I imagine for a lot of people in treatment, they probably fit on both spectrums a little bit. And to be able to hear someone speak eating disorder speak and somebody speak food addiction speak, they can then identify these parts in themselves, which allows them to be a little bit more acceptant and open to like treatment for it, right? Um, so you saw that it worked to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. 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 That's so neat. I'm so delightful to see people like her and her program doing this kind of work that is, I don't know, stretching the boundaries. And even though like it's not being told to us from academia, like do this, this is the way to do it, that, that she's taking those steps. And yeah, because it needs to be done to save lives. So. Yeah. And I definitely do want to touch on like what you see in those 12 step programs and even, you know, some coaches or colleagues where weight loss, you know, maybe even be in the title of what they do, you know, and that, you know, when alcohol, we put down the drink and do some work, but that's recovery with food. We put down the hedonic foods. We do the work, but that's not enough. Now we also have to be a certain size. We always have to be losing weight. What happens when we get to a maintenance stage? Like, are we not in recovery anymore? Like, it's just makes me irate. Right. And I think for the people who can't see you, Clarissa, I don't know if people like understand that you're being like a bit, a bit like sarcastic as far as, you know, like this is in quotes that like with yeah. food, we get this message that it's not enough if we're not in this very specific idea of a body and it's not even our own idea of what our body should look like. It is somebody else in program, quote unquote, or supposedly in recovery, making that judgment and then saying, oh, you must still not be in recovery, right? Like you must not be abstinent. You must be doing something wrong. You must still be volume eating or some of, you know, something. And I'm like, literally, literally in any other substance, I'm not asking somebody their weight. I'm not like monitoring if they're losing weight. 
Only in methamphetamine use disorder recovery do I ever make note of, is this person putting some pounds back on because they have usually walked in looking like a skeleton and with opioids too, depending on who, on who that person is. But, but then I'm not even talking weight. I'm just checking to make sure that like, they're not going to like fall over if the wind blows too hard. Totally. No, I totally agree. I think it's really. So what is that? Yeah. I know. I mean, I think it's, it's not helpful. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I think weight is not to be under rec- I mean, I think weight is important, right? Like I think weight is a predictor, not always, but sometimes is associated with, I don't know, like insulin resistance or diabetes or cardiovascular disease. Not all, like not everybody that has, is in a larger body has those, 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 you know, problems, but I think some people do. And certainly there's, you know, patients that have a lot of weight and uh, extra weight and are and have some pretty serious medical consequences from it. And that's terrible, right? But beyond those like factors, I just think it's, it's a not, it's a non-issue. It's about the, it's about the obsession and peace, the function, the happiness, the quality, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it has, it's not a factor. And I really don't, I think there's nothing but trauma and worsening emotional eating. And I mean, it's just going to make emotional eating worse. It's going to make people rebel. I mean, I, you know, rebel against that. Everybody tells me to lose weight. I'm like, where? Um, just remember that there, there, I have clients who are, you know, straight weight and underweight who have those same metabolic problems. You cannot look at somebody's body and tell if they have an eating disorder, an addiction, whether or not they're healthy. Like you can't, you cannot. So stop pretending you can look at a person in a larger body or a body that you think is too large and that you somehow know what's going on. Yeah, it's terrible. I, I don't, yeah, I think it's just, it's honestly, it makes me sad. It's tragic. I believe we should not be doing, we should not be still talking that way in the same you know. Yeah, but I think it's okay to also address that, like, you know, definitely somebody may say, and I've certainly had, I'm not going to have this inner peace. I'm not going to have this happiness until I have this weight loss or I'm in this size body. That's a different issue though. That's not food addiction recovery, right? Yeah, that's totally. that's so, definitely something else we have to work on. Exactly. Um, yeah. Another piece, another, you know, on body image module. Yeah, it's separate. It's yeah. separate from, it yeah, totally. exactly. Good. And it feeds Good. in. I mean, it's separate from, but it feeds in because 100%, the more, yeah. it, you know, the more we feel terrible about our bodies, the more negative affect we have, the more anxiety we have, the more isolation we engage in. And then, the more we want to eat to get rid of those negative emotions. Yeah. So that's a relationship. Dang it. If only it were as clear cut as everybody wants it to be, right? <laughs> if only it could be just be, you're in this camp or you're in this camp. You're in this body. You're in this body. You're in the right. Like you're right. You're wrong. You're good. You're bad. It, it, and it makes sense. Our brains want that. Our brains want that, right? Our brains yeah. want shortcuts. Yeah. Our brains want shortcuts, but that's like, that's just not real reality. If you're actually showing up in life, like everything is nuanced, it's layered, it's hard work. And, you know, and the more I do these interviews, I mean, I love your book because like I said, like, I'm like going through it and I'm like, oh my God, oh my, you know, like things that, you know, and I've read Joan Iflin's textbook. I don't remember her ever talking about subtypes in there, you know, like you brought up things that were new concepts to me and just got me thinking. And it, paired together with, again, what Clarissa and I are seeing. And at the end of the day, I just appreciate these kinds of conversations with you guys because it does, it gets me fired up. I'm more passionate to get back out there and see my clients. And it reminds me that I'm not alone. My clients are not alone and that there are people out there like fighting the good fight on a level that I can't. I mean, I'm not out there writing a research paper or book (laughs) at all. I'm not sure anybody wants to do that. Yeah, I was going to say yet, Molly. I know. Right? <laughs> Pretty strange behavior, but oh well. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has certainly been a really fun conversation. And obviously, we will have more. I don't know if they'll be recorded for Food Junkies, but we do have a, a YouTube channel too that I would love you know, to have interviews in the future on and Claire, you're not uh, done I think with it me needs yet. To be so. candid conversations with <laughs> yes, Claire. I'm yes. like, Claire will see. Yes, I already just was that's like it. thinking about it and needing it. it to happen. I love it. Oh, I love I'm, the animation. We'll have a segment called that. Yeah, yeah that's the, we'll name it. I love it. Well, it's been a pleasure, you guys. I have to go. If you want to stay, I'll leave it open, but I've got to go pick up my child from school. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so, thank you so, so much. much. I love both you and I love all the work that you're doing. It's just amazing what you're doing. And I really appreciate you existing. And I've referred people to you already, so I don't know if you've gotten any calls from 
people that I'm referring to. But your Thanks program. So Thank Claire. you. Yeah. All right. Take care. Have a great day, guys. Bye. 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 Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.